Hello and welcome. You're listening to Dash.Insider, the only podcast that you need to listen to if you want to create a life of freedom, choice, and abundance through property investing in Australia. And today's episode is going to help you do exactly that. I was a guest recently on the Property and Investing podcast. Highly recommend you go check it out. It is a great show. They are friends of ours. And I popped onto their show to help them understand what is going on in the current market today. And it was so good, in fact... That we decided, gee whiz, we should put this on Dash Dot Insider as well, because this episode is full of gold nuggets. Even if I do say so myself, we talk about why are property prices going up, even though interest rates are going up. We talk about what's happening with inflation, capital city markets versus regional markets, what can we expect in the future, and so much more. So if you are wanting to make heads or tails of what is happening in the market today so you can make more intelligent, more informed property investing decisions, then you are going to freaking love this episode. So Before we get stuck into it, make sure you share this with a friend, family member, or loved one. And without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it. I'll see you on the inside. Welcome to Property and Investing with Grant and Charlie, the place where we give you access to all the strategies, tools, and tactics to become a successful property investor. Charlie, you know me. I love a good acronym. RBA, PPR, REIA, APRA, P&I. And I was looking at the calendar invite for this podcast, and it was GGCPN. It was Goose Grant Charlie Property News. And I'm like, you know what else relates to GGCPN? Go get Charlie's property newsletter. So head over to propertyandinvesting.com forward slash newsletter. Put in your name and email. Click subscribe and we'll notify you every single time we drop one of these episodes. Now let's cue your disclaimer. All right, Grant. You know when we're playing golf and like someone does a really good shot and you do the tip of the hat, the little acknowledgement? Like it's like a thing in golf, right? I feel like I just have to give you that on that intro. That was one of your best. What do you think, Goose? That was that was solid. That's the um that's the second time that you've really you know, you've set the episode up so so massively with an intro like that. So very well done. Now I see where you put all of your effort. So I'm not expecting much out of you for the rest of the podcast, but just for that, you know, like the most important part is the intro, the hook, getting people engaged. If that doesn't work, I mean, I don't, I don't know what else. Yeah, I give up. Uh, I've just could- prepped all my. I agree. Yep, yep, yep. For the rest of the episode. So Charlie, it's on your back. <laughs> Thank you, Grant. I, I got it from here, man. You've done, you've done your work. Now, uh, as you may have already noticed. We've got a guest today. Goose, welcome Hello. to the podcast again. Well, it's nice to see you, Grant and Charlie, the grill master. Good to, um, good to be hanging out with you guys again. Well, I know we're meant to be talking about a property update, but yes, I did also get a new grill this month and I'm enjoying the cooking festivities that come from it. So on today's episode, we are going to be doing the June update. A lot is happening in property. I'm actually starting to wonder if the property investor niche has become entertainment more than actually investing with all the stuff and things that are coming out continually, but we've got a huge amount to cover in here. So let's get stuck into it. I want to come out of the gates on this one because there is something that I've had a huge amount of challenge trying to put together and understand. And I feel like Goose is the guy that might actually be able to give us some context here, Grant. Right now, we've just had rates go up uh, even further. There's been another two consecutive rate rises. I believe we're at uh, an RBA rate of 4.1%. I've also been looking at the core logic numbers and seeing what's come through in the last three months and property prices are rising. Now, my understanding is that they're not meant to do that. The whole idea of raising interest rates is that property prices, in theory, should come down because borrowing powers are constrained, all types of things uh, are affected by it, people are just 
I suppose, the sentiment aren't as willing to go into it, but we're seeing the opposite. And uh, I don't know how to make sense of this in a perfect picture, but I suspect, Goose, you're going to have some interesting insights there. So I'd love to just, let's kick it out of the gate. What the fuck is going on? Well, it's funny you say that, Charlie, because um, Grant was talking about acronyms earlier on, and my acronym that I thought of was WTF. What the fuck is it going really on? It really has that feel, does it not? Yeah, yeah. But let me let me just let me just anchor this back a little bit because if you remember, like I don't know, maybe like a year ago, I think I was on this podcast, perhaps saying that interest rates and property prices are not correlated, right? And I was shouting that from the rooftops from uh, twenty 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 two when rates started going up because they are actually not correlated. And we actually did a scientific analysis of it to prove that it wasn't correlated. I'm not going to go over all of that detail. We covered that in a previous podcast. In fact. I actually may have a special report that we produced, which we could um, give to you guys to to put in the downloads uh, for the show. So I'll have a dig, dig around for that afterwards and see if I can pull up something which is a deep dive into it. But broadly speaking, and this is kind of like one of the biggest mistakes that people have made over, well, over a really long period of time is that they think that property prices and interest rates are correlated and they're not. Now, sometimes they move in a similar direction, but not always. And in fact, the correlation is exceptionally low. The fact of the matter is there's 15,264 towns and suburbs in Australia, and they all move very, very differently. So some of the things that affect property prices, well, let me, sorry, let me restart that sentence. Some areas have a higher propensity to be more affected by interest rates than others. Even in those locations, the correlation is still relatively low. So I'm talking places like Sydney, Melbourne, and Canberra. They were the locate, broadly speaking, those kind of like greater capital city regions, specifically those three were the ones that had the highest correlation with interest rates. But even then, the correlation was relatively low. I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head, so I won't quote it. But I think it was like a, like a 30% correlation, something like that. Still pretty low. So you've got to actually start to ask yourself, what drives property markets? Like what is actually driving these movements? Now, I can say confidently that in all of the locations we've been buying over the last you know, 12 to 18 months, property prices have been going up. In fact, what's really interesting is even in Sydney right now, property prices have been going up and interest rates have been going up. And so if that doesn't in and of itself debunk the theory that as interest rates go up, prices go down, I don't know what else does. And so- um, Can we just jump in there? This is the part that I find interesting because you you share this with me that uh, more affluent areas or inner capital cities, particularly Melbourne and Sydney, should be more affected by interest rate rises. Now, Grant and I, in recent times, have been going to many open inspections and auctions in Melbourne. They are packed to the rim and things are going well above reserve. Like it's, I've been at inspections where there's been like, it's almost you'd swear you were going to a party, not an open house. Like maybe they're confused, but I've had, uh, I went to one in, this was in Brighton East in Victoria. There was no joke, I think 50 people in the house. It was ridiculous. Yeah, and then there were, but there were like four active bidders at an auction, and it went well over reserve. Like what? Yes. So the experience we're having in these suburbs that should be greatly affected is even very counterintuitive with boots on the ground. Just tweak some of the language that you used. You said some of the locations that should be greatly affected. What I specifically said is that some of these locations have a higher correlation, but even that correlation is still low, typically around about 30% or less. And so even in these locations, so what, what, what you have done and what everybody else done has done and does is presupposes 
a a reality. They're like more expensive suburbs are the ones that go down, or in fact, all suburbs or whatever the case may be. None of that is 100% true. In fact, the correlation isn't even strong enough to, to suggest that it is generally true, just that it might sometimes be true. And that's a very, very big difference, right? Which is why, in fact, now we're seeing a decoupling from these two ideas, because they can sometimes act like that, but other times not act like that. The thing that some of the, look, there are many, many things that make up uh, property market dynamics. In fact, we have built a property market predictive model, which is um, which is deg- degrees of accurate up to 15 months in the future. It's probably the most sophisticated thing out there on the market. To make up that predictive model, which says, hey, where are property prices going? There are 60 core factors that we've taken from about 4.5 million um, different data points we've analyzed over a few billion over the last couple of years. There's 60 core drivers that make up these models. 39 of those are completely proprietary and don't exist anywhere else in the market. They're not like you can't just go somewhere and buy the data. Like we've had to invent 39 of the metrics that get used in this model. But here's the thing. this It's not the same weighting in every one of those locations. So let's just, for the point of this discussion, say interest rates was one of those 60. Interest rates may affect... Um, may 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 be weighted higher for a suburb like Bondi than a suburb like Bundaberg, and so in each of these different locations, the the specific core elements that make up what drives demand in that location or drives price growth in that location differ and have different weightings. So what we what we've had to do is develop a dynamic model, and it's obviously pretty wacky, and we we could spend about nine hours trying to explain how that thing works. But you know what we're seeing in many of the locations is pretty simple. You know, there's an outstripping of demand versus supply. That's kind of like the biggest factor. So there's lots of different ways that this is playing out, and we can kind of talk about different patterns and movements and you know regionals and capitals. But at the end of the day, there's not enough houses, and we've been talking about this for some time as well. In fact, that specific point, the not enough houses. <laughs> if you go back to you know, for for those who don't know, I've got my own podcast as well. If you go back to like the episodes we were recording in like 2019 and 2020, we were talking about it then. There's been an undersupply of houses for a long period of time. We've had we've had builders going bust. We've got no new supply coming in, and so. And yet, at the same time, we've had increases in migration. We've had increases in total population. We actually have, generally speaking, quite a healthy economy. And so that is not changing the underlying demand, but the supply side is completely broken. Now, to some degree, people can and will change their location to suit the opportunities, both economic and, or you know, primarily economic, so jobs, but also affordability to some degree. But in a, to some other degree, people want have other drivers as well. Some people will choose to want to stay in a specific location to be closer to the family based on their values or based on other opportunities that may present themselves that they deem valuable enough. And back in 2022, when everyone was saying, oh my God, interest rates are going up, there's going to be a fire sale and everyone's going to start getting rid of their houses because they can't afford them. The specific narrative that I offered up at that period of time was people will compromise on other areas of their life before they will compromise on things like shelter. They won't, they, yeah, they won't eat in order to live somewhere. So 100%. Yeah. I'm curious. So I always think about like the tug of war, like the increase in property prices, decrease in property prices. And you're saying there's, uh, across the data that you see, there's the 60-odd different layers to it. But if I'm understanding it, is it mostly the undersupply and immigration that's the 250 kilo two guys on the back of the, this is why property prices are increasing, and then all of the other layers? Or is there another more macro view of that? To some degree, yes. The macro supply and demand issue is kind of like a, a core. that I would say that that's a through line that goes through many, many locations. However, 
if we were to look at like individual specific markets, you might find um, that there is a more prescient individual driver in that specific market. So for example, if there was a location where there was a huge amount of job opportunity and also the um, relative affordability was better, that may be a bigger driver than say any kind of supply versus demand consideration in that location. So as an example, let's just say uh, an area, Let's uh, can we pick one to, to make this more relevant? Let's say it is uh, Bundaberg. Why not? We've referenced that one already. So Bundaberg, not an overly huge city, but let's say they build a new hospital, a university, they're going to put in, there's a new mine opening up as well, there's farms expanding and they need workers, like there's an influx of jobs to that area. That is going to be something in this example that would enable the type of growth you're talking about because incomes become higher, there's less supply, that will outstrip it in a way. Affordability is probably better in that region as well than say Sydney. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're hitting the nail exactly on the head. So at, at the core, there's three, like, you know, maybe people have heard me in the past talk about things like the holy trinity, cash flow growth and value adding. There's, a, there's kind of another holy trinity for locations, uh, and that's jobs, lifestyle and affordability, pretty simply, right? Now that cascades down into a complex ecosystem of micro, you know, factors, but broadly speaking, that's the kind of thing. Do people want to live there? Is it the kind of place they would want to live, right? Because you can have a high amount of jobs in a place that people don't want to be, that area may go up in value, but it's going to be tremendously volatile. Um, you can you can have affordability, but if there's no jobs and no lifestyle, people don't want to be there. It could just be a cheap place in the middle of the desert. Nobody wants to be there. So you've got to have these kind of factors working together. So that's like mining town, right? It's like there's a mine that's open. People all go there for the cash, but as soon as the cash windows, it's like, see ya, and so does no lifestyle. Really classic example here, really classic example is Port Hedland versus Broome in Western Australia. Now, um, I was actually talking. To, I was actually in Broome recently, um, uh, just just last week actually, and it's quite interesting because we looked at Broome um, a couple of years ago when our kind of system was saying, "Hey, go buy in Broome." We couldn't we couldn't validate that it was it had a sustainable uh, opportunity in front of it, so we chose not to invest in that location at that time. However, now it's interesting because you know probably should have. And I was speaking to someone the other day, like we've never chosen the wrong location, but there's plenty of the right locations that we haven't we haven't gone into. But if you look at Broome and Port Hedland, um, Port Hedland is primarily a mining-driven um, set of circumstances, right? And so the opportunity to make a lot of money is there, but also the opportunity to lose a lot of money is there. Broome, similar part of the country, you know, has some exposure to mining, but also has a huge exposure to things like tourism, um, government uh, departments. There's a lot of like, you know, um, government departments that are centered there and all of this kind of stuff, which stabilizes broad, more broadly speaking, the economy. And so you have these different drivers. That has a lifestyle driver. People want to be in Broome because it's beautiful and it's the kind of place that people would like to go and spend time. And so you have this kind of different balance there. Now, that is also driven by an undersupply issue because there's still not enough um, buildings being built there relative to the amount of people who want to live there. But that is that that the supply and demand side of the equation is supported by some underlying drivers, which are things like jobs, lifestyle, and affordability. Now, affordability, I just want to point out before we kind of move on from this point, is a really interesting one as well. And we've been doing we've been building um, a suburb scoring uh, matrix, which we're going to be releasing um, probably in the next couple of months. Um, and one of those factors that we've looked at is affordability. And the way that we look at affordability is relative local affordability. So what is the median wage versus the median price? And how does that how does that impact or how does that reference against other locations? So for example, the median wage in Sydney versus the median wage in Bondi versus the median uh, 
price in Bondi, there's probably a, a much larger gap in Bondi than there is in Bundaberg. And so therefore you have relative affordability, i.e. if I get a job in that location and that pays me $1,000 a week, or if I get a job in Bondi and it pays me $1,000 a week, which one is going to give me the best quality of life based on what I can afford? This is where the affordability piece comes into it. Not necessarily just what are the interest rates, but actually what is the relationship between the income I have and the lifestyle I can afford with that income. This is this is an interesting, Charlie. You and I were talking about this exact thing. So I've got a, a, a property and every property manager that I spoke to, because I went out to market, I was like, this thing should rent for 5.30, should rent for 5.30. So we put it on the market. And interestingly enough, we had a lot of people like the property, walk through the property, but their problem was that it was too high of a percentage of the household income where it had just hit this ceiling where it was, no, like that is going beyond, I don't know if it was a 35% or a 40% of what they actually earn, to which for them, it's better to have a smaller place, it's better to live in a smaller block, et cetera. And so we actually just right-sized it down to, I can't remember the exact calculation, it was like a 35%. And then we had applications and a tenant that came in. And so instead of like 520 or 530, we rented it out for 500, which is still a great yield. But it was really interesting to see that it had hit that like household income ceiling as opposed to what everyone was saying, like, this is what it should go for. Bingo. And that, so that points to something that's really, really interesting. And so um, what I actually think we're going to do in this episode, which is really fun, is we're going to actually start to tease out some of these drivers and how they, the thinking behind some of these drivers, which could be really, really interesting. Um, so just looking static at the median income versus the median house price will give you a reference. However, if you can track and measure the rate of change between the current median income and, you know, and its past and its future, if you can track that movement, that can be an interesting, like a really, really interesting indicator. Because if, I know you want to say something, Charlie, but I'll just collapse on this point. So if, for example, um, there's a town and all of the, uh, the only, only jobs are factories and all of the factories pay $25 an hour. Okay. And so then three more factories get built in the town and they all pay $25 an hour. What's happening to the median wage? Nothing. More jobs? Good. But none of the wages are going up. Charlie? <laughs> I was just uh, very much intrigued by the idea in your suggestion of what a powerful driver this is for places that are not capital cities and really looking at this one right now in our own experience if someone let's say was working in a corporate in Melbourne and is now able to work remotely in let's say Shepparton right or Bendigo or Ballarat and they're able to take that higher income to that region you've just lifted this number and if that is occurring on a big level which I don't know if there's been any pandemics that happened that might have enabled that that might be a consideration where you've got the profile of the person in a suburb changing massively. Well, the, that's exactly where uh, the new property manager landed was, Grant, this is short term. We're already seeing an increase in household income within this area. They're like, it's just going to come through. It's just you're just one step ahead. Your property is just a little bit too advanced for where the income is. But all of these government projects that are rolling through, people living remotely and working remotely, they're like, this will just come through. And I was just, I was taken aback going, it was one layer I'd never thought about and never considered. Even further, if a hospital gets built, there's more doctors in an area. 
Like that's a higher income. If I mean, I'm led to believe that government employees are just exploiting the system in many ways. So if there's any bureaucrats in the area, we would see the incomes go up. And if for anyone who wants to look more deeply into that comment, if you want to look at what people in parliament get paid, uh, you may be very, very surprised. Even our old mate, Dr. Lowe's on over a million dollars a year. Indeed. And so what's really interesting about that is we did uh, an analysis on infrastructure projects and how they affected relative property markets. And you would think something like building a hospital would mean property prices go up. We thought that too. We thought we were going to do a study that just proved everything we knew. And then we were going to write a report and try and look really smart. Except as we did the study, we realized that everything that we thought was true was not true. And in fact, only sometimes do hospitals, in fact, increase prices. It depends. The type of infrastructure project that impacts the property market depends on the economic and industry makeup of that specific location. And I'll give you an example. So to your point around doctors may you know, increase the income in an area and that would have, an, we can see how that could have an impact. Um, things like finance and professionals, white collar professionals, they also change fundamentally the dynamics of a location. And so interestingly, if you have a location, which the primary industry is professional services, white collar workers, then the type of infrastructure project, which would add the most amount of value to that location would be an entertainment based one. So a new um, stadium or soccer field or yeah, but yeah, specifically entertainment. So, because lifestyle could be other things like, I don't know, a marina or, or whatever. I don't know. But yeah, yeah, it's parks or whatever. So, specifically entertainment infrastructure projects. And so, this then gets really, really interesting because then you have to segment, start segmenting the entire country in ways that have not yet been geographically defined. So, we actually, actually had to develop our own um, geographic definitions to be able to kind of map these like kind of regions, which is really, really fun. Um, I, I want to drag us on to another point now because it's interesting and relevant. Can I ask one question though? Yeah. Has these recent insights that you're discovering here reshaped the way we think about the property markets and what we're seeing? Where in previous times I had uh, the census of like, you know, inner city rings is how things would grow or blue chip locations due to jobs. It seems like we've seen a massive shift here, like huge potentially. So what I would say to that is that you can – Look at a graph of Sydney, whatever, pick a suburb in Sydney or pick greater capital city, and you can see, broadly speaking, it has grown more than other locations. And so none of this stuff means that any of the other stuff isn't true. It's actually just about understanding why these things might be true so you can make better decisions. Because these mental models that people have created, like capital cities always outperform regionals, that's not true. Um, you know, Sydney always grows more than everywhere else. Sydney's had the biggest price declines, right, out of all of the places in the country. We've had plenty of places that haven't had any price decline, right? And so these things aren't necessarily true. And this is kind of the point that I want to make is that there's, it's a far more sophisticated thought process that needs to go into it. You need to actually understand the why because at a certain point, Sydney is going to be a great place to invest. And I will just let a little cat out of the bag. We are developing right now the technology that we've applied to the rest of the country to be specifically applicable in places that have a uniquely different market dynamic places like sydney and melbourne because i believe that there's an opportunity there coming up i don't believe that opportunity is here right now i believe it's coming up and so this is not a like this is really just about seeing the market as something that it really is not how we think it should be which is the big difference because there's so much more to it. And everyone has these kind of bucketed expectations. Even if you go back to how people like property doubles every seven to 10 years. Nonsense. Sometimes it does. S sometimes it does. 
And sometimes it really, really does not. Sometimes it does the opposite. It can like halve in seven years. And so these kind of models are the things that I want to um, break away, like these kind of sacred cows, so to speak, that are just fundamentally not true. And so if we can then start to go along a process to try and define what is true, that gives us the capability to make more intelligent property investing decisions, which is ultimately the end game. And if you can do that, then you can make more money with far less effort and with far less risk. And property investing is a game of making money. That's what it's about. We're trying to build wealth and create a degree of freedom for ourselves, confidence, security, so we can go and live our best lives. That's what it's all about. Now, we want to do that in an ethical way. We want to do that in a friendly way. We also want to do that in an easeful and low-risk way. And so the more that you can de-shackle yourself from the constraints of the past and open yourself to a new way of thinking, the easier it is going to be for you to achieve those outcomes. I think that's amazing, Goose. I'm excited. Now, I cut you off midpoint. Where would you like to take this conversation next? Well, I was just going to point to population, right? So we, I think we don't need to labor the point on the um, the supply and demand thing. I think everyone kind of knows there's not enough houses being built. Well, it, just in case they don't know, building approvals are at record lows. There's less houses being built today than ever before. There was already a housing shortage. There's builders that have been going bust. There are not enough houses, static, and not enough being built, progress, so it's actually an issue that is getting worse, not better, but it's already bad. So we've got that as an underlying layer. Now, one of the things that we, I'll just, I'll just point out, I'm not gonna give away all of our um, secrets, but one of the things that does have a big impact, a significant impact on property prices is population change. And so the rate of change, both the rate and the volume of change matter when it comes to population as it relates to property prices. Now, you've got to remember as well, property prices don't exist at something like a Sydney level. They don't even exist at something like a Bondi level. They, they exist on a really small micro grid, right? And so what you can actually find is even in... So, so I'll come back to that point. First and foremost, people moving places is going to be a huge driver. So we've covered some of the other ones like affordability, jobs, lifestyle, affordability, all this kind of stuff. But then also people going places, which might sound pretty simple, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, that's the, um, that's the demand side going to meet the supply side. But there's a strong correlation between population growth and population movement and volume and rate of change and property prices. Um, it's significant. And so it's something that's worth paying attention to. So then you get to think about how and where people are moving. So in some cases, the capital cities are tending to fill up with new new immigrants. That tends to be a common pattern. It's not absolutely true, but it can be generally true. And the way that that tends to work is that the capital cities tend to, I say tend to because this isn't an absolute rule, tend to fill up with migrants like a reservoir. They come in from overseas because they don't know where to go, so they go to the capitals. And then over a period of a few years, they filter out to the rest of the country. That tends to be the movement pattern. That movement pattern existed well before COVID, so the exodus to the regionals was already fully in flow before COVID. That was already happening. That wasn't a COVID thing. That was already existing. Got accelerated by COVID, but it was already existing. So that trend still continues. Um, but then also you have... Um, inter, no, intra 
uh, LGA migration, which is also really, really interesting, right? And so when you actually start to get down to like a really granular level and start looking at LGAs in suburbs, you can also see how population movement within even small locations, not just macro, is everyone moving to Queensland, but like within an LGA, how that can change things as well. And that also can tie back to things like affordability. So one of the things we've noticed, for example, just to bring this down to a micro, is even in some of the LGAs that we're buying in, you'll have higher priced sort of more blue chip areas and lower priced, you know, more affordable areas and stuff like that. What we're actually seeing, broadly speaking, is that the exodus to affordability, sorry, the exodus to affordable lifestyle is, that's been a driver for the last three years, right? And so that is still a core driver. And we're actually seeing intra-LGA migration affecting property markets more locally than ever before, which is really, really interesting. And it also points to one other thing I'll, I'll say before I shut up and let you guys get a word in edgeways because I, I can waffle on a little bit. No, this update's probably the best one we've had in a while. So me and Grant have been saying the same things too many times over. This is new and refreshing. We're excited. Keep going. Benchmark's Good. so high now, Charlie. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? So... Um, one of the things that COVID did to the Australian property market is it made it move as a homogenous, unified market. Probably the only time in history that has ever happened. So what that meant was broadly speaking, all markets kind of did the same thing. And to that degree, pretty much, and lots of investors experience this, you could pretty much buy a property anywhere and make money. That's because broadly speaking, what COVID did was it, was, it completely made the market go in a really weird way, broadly speaking, all moved in the same direction. That is, I cannot express how freakish that is compared to how markets generally move. That was like a complete anomaly. Now, what we're actually seeing is a reversion to how markets normally move, which is in a hyper-localized fashion. And so, so I think part of what is going on as well is that people are kind of freaking out because they're like, wait a second, the market's doing all of this crazy stuff now. And it's like, no, it's doing the normal things. You just didn't pay attention to it when it was doing normal things in the past. And so the fact that um, property markets are moving in a hyper-localized fashion is specifically far more normal than anything we experienced during the kind of COVID boom. And this is also points, again, to one kind of final point that I want to make on this thread, that one of the bigger overarching impacts on the property market is, in fact, consumer sentiment. So I've said this again uh, time and time and time again. Psychographics move markets far more than demographics or statistics ever will. And so understanding how people feel is going to make a bigger impact on how different markets move. And so we see that at the moment with low stock levels. So the stock levels at the moment are 40% lower than they were six months ago or something like that. And also in many, many locations, the lowest they've been in 17 years. Now, if interest rates going up, we're going to cause everyone to have a fire sale, wouldn't stock levels be going up? Wouldn't that make more sense? Well, in fact, that is not happening. And the reason that is not happening is because people are freaking out and they're like, oh, it's a bad time to sell. People don't need to sell because they can hold on to the properties. And so there's less stock currently available in market based on how people are thinking and feeling, despite the fact that in most, many at least, I don't know if it's statistically most, so I'll just caution myself there, but in in a significant amount of locations, property prices are still going up. And even in the locations where prices are going up, right? And objectively speaking, it might be a really fantastic time to sell because prices are like getting quite high. 
sellers are still concerned and saying, I think that this is a bad time to sell because they're hearing negative news media based around places like Sydney and Melbourne. And so this psychographic overlay can, can be really counterintuitive to how the market is actually moving. So I'll say that again, just in case people didn't catch it. Even in locations where property prices are moving steeply upwards and rental demand is at an all-time high and objectively speaking, markets are in a fantastic position, sellers are still convinced that it might be a bad time to sell because they're being spooked by the media and that's affecting consumer sentiment. This then exacerbates the supply and demand issue, which creates more tightening, which creates more pressure, which moves markets more. So it kind of feeds into itself a little bit there. It kind of reminds me of the whole idea of like, we've got a supply problem uh, with property, yet we keep moving interest rates up, which is causing less supply to come into the market. It's kind of like counterintuitive, which will push market prices up as well. Now, I know we uh, have some limited time with you today, Goose, and I love these points, but I'd love to get your take on a couple of other things while we have you here, if it's all right. So first one is, did you ever think that interest rates would actually get this high when you looked at it on the outlook? Um, short answer is no. I think they've gone higher than they... I, yeah, I, I would say that I'm surprised at how high they have gone versus where I originally thought they would get to. Yeah, I genuinely, I thought that uh, inflation would have come down a little sooner and that we probably by now would have seen a flattening of the rate rising cycle. That being said, I'm not alarmed by it. So they have gone up a little higher than I thought and inflation has taken a little longer than I thought to tone down and I thought that we would have seen a flattening by now. So, But I also think that that's a pretty common perspective. I think a lot of people, particularly over the last couple of months, like the last couple of rate rises, I think have had a few people going, like, really? Like, seriously? Like, is this still going on? Um, which is interesting to me. And the next portion of that is when we layer this all in, where do you think things are going from here? Like you're very fortunate to have a whole heap of data. You've got access to a whole heap of investors and not just to mention you're quite well known in the property industry and have access to that as well. What's your take on where things are going from here? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I'm going to answer it in a few different parts. So the first thing is, I think interest rates are still going to go up a little bit further. Uh, an interesting point of reference on that is the uh, ASX... Um, what is it? The ASX 30-day interbank futures. If anyone wants to go check that out, kind of gives you a sense of where, like, the financial eggheads think the think the money is going to go. That could be a really interesting indicator. Of course, it's crystal ball type stuff because no one knows how the RBA is actually going to act. So, um, I also it's good to see uh, inflation coming down a little bit. However, I would understand if the RBA is cautious still. And, you know, I suspect that there might be a couple more rate rises still on the horizon before it comes off. Now, that being said, um, I'm still quite bullish on the fact that interest rates are going to come down significantly again. Um, I think that that is going to be the natural cycle. That is what has happened has happened in the past. I don't know how low they're going to how low they are going to go. I'm not going to speculate on that, but I'm pretty confident they're going to come down a significant way from where they are right now. Um, I think they're going to go up a little bit further and then come down far below where they are right now. So on to um, what I think is going to happen next in the property market. So what's really interesting is. The stock levels are in many, 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 many locations, the lowest they've been in 17 years. And so we actually started taking a bit of a look at that. And we discovered that in, if you go back 17 years, we actually looked at a bunch of different locations where stock and looked at what was happening at their stock levels at that time. And it was the same situation. Um, and that immediately preceded a boom. So in 2006, 2007, in many locations, there was like a huge boom. So 
it, a, a significant inflection point happened at that moment in time. And what was interesting then is inflation was up at that point in time as well. Interest rates were up at that point in time as well. And stock levels were down at that point in time. And then what happened is the market took off. Like market pressure caught up and then the market took off. And in many places that, that continued. Some places boomed for like two years and some places boomed uh, for longer through to about 2012. So there's not a hard and fast rule. It's not like everywhere is going to do this specific thing. What we noticed, though, was that there was a commonality that there was a significant growth spurt. The length and depth of that varied on a per location basis. Um, so I've been saying now for a few months that I think that we are approaching the start of another boom. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going to boom everywhere. In fact, back to a point that I made earlier, um, we're back to kind of like normal market dynamics, which means that the majority of places may not boom, but the places that boom are the ones that are going to boom really, really well. And so we've got to be very specific about where we are investing and why we are investing in those specific locations. And in fact, the most important thing is making sure you've got your strategy right, making sure you're buying the right property in your portfolio. Because let's just say hypothetically that Rosebury in Sydney was going to be some rock star boom growth suburb. Um, but if buying a property there was going to preclude you from buying any other property, maybe because it's a 1% yield or something like that, you would have to actually assess whether macro that was still going to be the best result for you and your portfolio, given you know, a set, given your current set of resources and circumstances. So understanding this, understanding how the market's going to move is one part. Understanding your strategy is significantly a different part and understanding your three critical constraints in your portfolio is going to be the key to success in any market. Um, but what we are seeing is that the markets are starting to change. I think that over the next couple of years, there'll be a really good opportunity to invest in capital cities. Um, I think commercial right now is feeling some stress because lots of people who bought into commercial are on lease stock loans where there's specific uh, lease coverage covenants that uh, exist to make sure that they are getting a certain amount of rent versus the, the, um, the loan amount. A lot of those are getting squeezed. And so there are a lot of mum and dad investors in commercial who bought for cash flow who are no longer able to support that. And so there's some interesting kind of dynamics happening in the commercial market. I'm not a commercial expert, but this is what I'm starting to tease out as well. And so we're looking at what diversification looks like to to support a more macro diverse portfolio no matter what unfolds over the next couple of years. So personally, I think it's really, really interesting and I'm, I'm quite bullish on the fact that we're going to see significant price rises in many locations over the next 18 to 24 months. It's amazing. I actually really enjoy in this conversation that you're spinning out opportunities where in the forefront, there's probably not so great an outlook. Like you've just referenced commercial here where it's like short term, Maybe not the greatest, but that may present the very opportunity for it to be the greatest. And even in what you've referenced with Melbourne and Sydney of potentially, again, not financial advice, but may not be the location to buy right now, but with the setups that occur in three to five years or your time reference here, it might be an excellent time to buy their goose. Well, that's right. I'll just put a point on that. And that if you want to create the possibility for that to be true for you and your portfolio, you need to th- start thinking about it right now. So here's a way to, here's a way to think about the whole ca- kind of capital city thing. Now, we've primarily bought in regional locations over the last four years. Not exclusively. We have bought in some capitals. We haven't bought in Melbourne and Sydney, but we've bought in some capital cities. So I'm not against capitals. But typically, we haven't seen that it's been the right investing opportunity, which is why we haven't been proactive in those locations. Now, if you want, if, if you can see that at a point in the future that it's going to become a potentially a good idea to do that you need to work out how you would do that from a portfolio context which i kind of touched on there the way to do that is you need to assess if i were to buy a one percent yielding property in rose rosebury for example 
how might that affect my portfolio? And which is probably going to affect on the cash flow side, right? So you're probably going to need to solve for that so that you can set yourself up. And this is effectively what strategy is. Strategy is in effect, you know, looking at what are the resources you have versus an infinite number of uh, possible opportunities, where are you trying to get to, and how do you think five moves ahead at least on what you're trying to do to get there. And so if you think that on move number four, you're going to be over on this side of the board, you need to think about how you're going to get there and how you're going to make sure you can take move number five because getting to move number four and stopping is not the goal. So just thinking all that kind of stuff through, and that's why I'm encouraging people to kind of take a kind of deeper look at how they're approaching property right now. A lot of people were just shooting from the hip over the last few years made some money and so a lot of people lost a lot of money and again i'm not trying to just say keep going back to things that i've said in the past but that is what i was saying was going to happen back when everything was booming and everyone's like oh you can buy a property anywhere i'm like yeah a lot of those locations are going to go down in value again too because you haven't bought with underlying fundamentals and what we've seen is that's happened and the tide went back out again and so i'm just really imploring that people take a pragmatic and strategic look at their portfolio and also recognize that there's a there's a ton of opportunity right now. Now is not the time to be scared. Now's the time to be strategic. Now's the time to be going, okay, cool. Like this is a great time to make some moves, but let's just make sure I'm making the right moves, which is what you should be asking yourself in any environment. Completely. Now on that point, Goose, I know previously uh, your company Dashdot was offering portfolio planning sessions. Now you may or may not still be doing that, but for someone who does want to get more strategic with their portfolio, have a look at what it is to be strategic in these contexts. Can, can they get in touch? Are you still running these? Do you have that awesome software still that lays it all out and gives you pretty charts? I love that thing, by the way. Yeah, yeah, no, we do. And I'll just, um, I'll just clarify because a lot of people say, like a lot of companies say, we offer strategy planning sessions and they're just a conversation, right? Potentially a sales call. We actually built a, a very sophisticated piece of um, technology that is specifically designed to be able to plan anyone's portfolio from wherever they currently are to wherever they want to be. Even if you don't even have enough money to get started in property investing yet, you can still build a plan based around what your current savings are and how we're going to get you there and all of that kind of stuff. And this is actually like, you know, it's taken us years to build it and it's exceptionally sophisticated. And so what I would encourage anyone to do is get a plan because if you've got a plan, you know where you're going. If you don't have a plan, it's, you know, you can make good decisions, but you're never really going to understand where they're going to fit. And yes, we do still offer those. Um, we do have limited capacity and I don't say that as, um, I'm not just throwing that away. Like we, we, we have an undersupply of portfolio strategists and an oversupply of people who, uh, people who want a plan. Um, but if people do want to get a plan, they can head to dashdot.com.au and uh, book in a call. Just um, click on the book a call button, speak to one of the team, and then uh, we will get you in as soon as we have some space. Well, I will speak for Grant on this one, as I often do on this podcast. We've both gone through that planning process and that bit of software you have, as well as having someone that can explain it to you and go through it, immensely awesome i'm uh, thrilled to be able to sit here and say that we've been going through it and been getting great results with it now goose that is the time we have with you today i want to say a big thank you for coming on the show this is goose from dashdot he's uh, bought many properties for myself and grant and we're obviously a big fan of the work he does and if you've listened to this point in the episode you probably understand why we are such big advocates it's just a wealth of knowledge here as well so big thank you for you goose it's a pleasure to have you on the show grant do you want to is there somewhere people can go if they want to get more information? Totally. Uh, what about subscribing to the newsletter or about Dash Charlie? 
We have a newsletter. There's a dash dot. This is this is exactly right. So don't forget GGCPN. So this was the Grant Goose Charlie Property News June 2023 episode, and then GGCPN again. Go get Charlie's Property Newsletter. Head over to propertyandinvesting.com forward slash newsletter. Put in your name and email. Hit subscribe and we'll notify you every single time we come out with one of these episodes. And whilst you're on the website, if you go to the partners page, you'll be be able to learn a whole heap about Dashdot and book in one of those strategy sessions. Can I throw in one more point? You can throw in two. I'm just going to throw one. Every week I get uh, people message me to ask if Dashdot's real. I kid you not. Like It's a weekly occurrence that someone will find me on a Facebook group or from an ad on social media and want to confirm these details. I'm just going to put it out there right now. It's like, it's, it's real. I do love the messages, but it's like, we've got to get past this whole idea of fakeness, right? I, I am a real person. It's, um, it's really funny because that is the biggest challenge that we have as an organization is that our, and I'm not saying this to brag, I'm just pointing out how like weird it is that the consistency of our results and the consistency of our reviews cause people to think that we're not real. And in fact, we've even had messages because we have another, we have our own podcast and we have our team members um, join me on the podcast as well. And we've had messages literally suggesting that our team are not real because they are all too good looking. <laughs> so, 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 so people are questioning, are the team real? Are the clients real? Are the properties real? It's, it's guys, it's, it's real. It's legit. <laughs> it's better than the messages I get. I get lucky you got an audio podcast because you got a face for radio. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> so right. You get good messages. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, Goose. Appreciate you as always, Charlotte. We'll catch you everybody on the next episode of Property and Investing. See you guys.